Good morning. I appreciate your expressions of concern and, and prayers for my dad. Um, my dad's had a stiff aortic valve for a while, and he was going to think he was just going to kind of ride that out, except his mitral valve started to develop problems. So it ended up putting fluid in his lungs, and he was having trouble breathing. So they repaired the aortic valve to a transcatheter procedure, and looks like this week they'll do the mitral valve. He made it through the first fine. It looks like he's going to make it through this, the second one fine as well. He's getting very good care. And so I appreciate your concern. The thing makes it a little tricky and a little dicey. My dad just has one kidney. So all these processes put a strain on the kidneys so they have not been able to do things as quickly as they might have in deference to not taxing the kidney too much. But it looks like he's going to be fine. Appreciate your concerns for and prayers for him. Um, as we kind of back up, we went forward and then we're going to back up. And think about the Lord's Supper this week, and that's as Jay said, we're going to um, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. In the 11th chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he shifts from minor issues to major ones, from things that kind of matter to things that really matter. The focus shifts from concerns about hairdos and head coverings to concerns about the Lord's Supper celebrations. Um, look what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. Paul writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Or in the first place, When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. We think about the first first slide, John. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Um, What matters most to God? It's an important question. Watch the Celtics get beaten last night by the Cleveland Cavaliers. They're back in the series. It's easy to figure out what happens, what matters in basketball. You put the ball through the hoop, and you protect the other team from doing so. What matters in football is equally simple. Put the ball across the goal line. Uh, we've talked about it. What does it mean for a Christian to put the ball through the hoop? What counts most? And that's an important question to be able to ask because we really can't evaluate how we're doing until we figure out what it is that counts. And so the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's what it means to put the ball through the hoop. There's got to be faith as a foundation and love as the superstructure. So faithless love is short and loveless faith is short. Um, because faith expressing itself in love is what counts, um, their Lord's Supper celebrations, as Paul writes to them, are a source of major concern. That's um, what he writes in the following instructions. I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Their communion celebrations are orthodox enough. It's not that they fail to understand that they're supposed to be thinking about Jesus. They are not saying the wrong things. But when they come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper, they're doing the wrong things, and that's the problem. We might say, well, as long as they're coming together, but what Paul indicates is that their assembling together is not merely a waste of time. It's harmful. It would be better if they didn't do it. It's it's to that degree. So what we ask, what's in the world's going on here? And that's what we'll try to figure out. He talks about divisions. These divisions, though, aren't really about their theology, It has to do with the way they treat one another. There are haves and have-nots in this church structure. And when they come together for the Lord's Supper, the disparity between haves and have-nots is amplified. The have-nots feel that the light is focused on what they don't have. They feel very inferior, and those who have more feel very superior. So rather than come together at the foot of the cross, everyone on the same ground, they come together and there are divisions based on if you're a have or if you're a have-not. Uh, Paul writes, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. With the way the Lord's Supper worked in those days is it was 
it, it began, it was a meal, it began with breaking the bread, and they'd remember Jesus, and then they would have a meal together. And the early church met in houses, so we're not thinking of hundreds of people. We're thinking of 20, 30, depending on how big the house was, 40 maybe, and some were in the living room and some were in an atrium. And those who gathered in the living room, they probably were the more wealthy. Those who were gathered in the atrium, maybe they were those who didn't have as much status. And again, Corinth was a very status-conscious place. Anyways, so there are that many people here. It's not like today. It's in a house. And um, they uh, start with breaking the bread, and then they share this meal together, and after that, they share the cup. His own meal, this, what Paul talks about, suggests that, that people bring their own meals to the Lord's Supper. So you have a bag lunch. There you take it from home, and you bring it to this place. Uh, the more affluent members, they probably supplied the bread and the wine that they celebrated together, but it wasn't a potluck. You know, it wasn't that people brought stuff to share with other people. It's that if you're a person or you're a member of a household, you brought enough for your family or for yourself. This created problems because one of the problems is that some had more than others. And some who had a real feast, they partook of that. And they, and they ate and, and there were others who were there that didn't have the amount of food that they had, and, and they went hungry. The problem is, is that those who had a lot felt perfectly justified in eating to their heart's content and really not deferring to those who didn't have as much as they had. It's not that they were mean to them. It's just that they didn't share with them. And Paul sees this not as a minor faux pas, he sees this as abominable, especially in light of the fact of what the Lord's Supper signifies. And that's what Paul, that's the, that's the argument that he makes. Um, anyways, what ended up happening? One group ended, left this meal feeling, oh, oh boy, that was a meal, wasn't it? And maybe even loaded. And some who didn't have much, they, they went away hungry. Uh, Another problem is not just that they had differing amounts. They started at different times. Uh, if you were a lower status person, you might be delayed by work obligations. So you couldn't get there first. The individuals who were wealthy had the ability, because of what they owned, to be able to have more freedom. They arrived at these celebrations early and started early. And then those who were the lower class citizens, they arrived a little bit late. And there's other ones who have already been well into it. And maybe they needed it because they had more to eat and needed more time. Uh, but at any rate, Paul sees this dynamic and he has real issues with it. Um, so the issue is that they had differing amounts and they start at different times. Why were some Christians oblivious to the needs of others? Why? How could this happen? Um, interestingly, they were very much at home in a culture in which contempt for the poor was common among the upper class. They, that's what Corinth was like, very status conscious. It's how they lived their life. And so when they went from culture into church, nothing changed. 
And that was the problem. They would have no misgivings about feasting in the presence of others who had little or inferior fare. It's just the way life was. Uh, Paul doesn't mince his words, though. What he says is, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He says, if the Lord's Supper exists to satisfy hunger, stay home. Again, in the context of this meal, don't come then, because it's worse to come because of the signal it sends to the church at large. To ignore a brother or sister in Christ at the common meal is unconscionable. Why is this such an issue? There's no arguments. There's no fighting. He's not pointing the finger at immoral things they're doing. They're not worshiping some other god. Um, They're just acting in line with socially accepted norms. And when you're celebrating the Lord's Supper and there's inequity, some people feeling that it's just, it's not what the Lord's Supper is about. What the Lord's Supper is about is Jesus giving his body for everyone. And the problem is Jesus gives his body equally and they're Gathering and they're not willing to share their bread equally. You understand the problem? It's very out of context with what the cross is about. And that's why Paul has the issue and he goes on to talk about what Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What is to be remembered is the crucified one gave his body and his blood, and they are to imitate Christ's example of self-giving. And again, if that's so, you understand the point. Jesus gives his body equally. They're not willing to share their bread equally. Um, Sometimes we think, I would be willing to sacrifice this or that if it came. And what Paul points out, if they're not willing to share a meal equally, and again, then that's something that is indicative of a problem. The Lord's Supper is founded on Jesus' sacrifice for others. The way the Corinthians conducted their supper, however, gave witness to the culture of selfishness and status-seeking. And to conduct this supper in such a way was a serious problem and caused things that I don't think we're going to experience today. But listen to what it says. And Paul points out some things in the church, and I think that they would be shocked to hear what Paul writes to them, because this is what he said, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat 
of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is what he says. I think they probably were very shocked by this. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Eating and drinking the Lord's body and blood as a, as a meeting, in, term, in Paul's mind, is... Um, has implications which no other eating and drinking does. It's not just going about with a bunch of friends and just go to a place and have something to eat, have something to drink, that's fine. But when you come together for the Lord's Supper, Paul sees there are dynamics in place that are very significant. They can't treat this meal as a pleasant gathering of friends. It's fraught with spiritual peril if they treat this meal in a cavalier manner. Paul points to sudden illnesses and deaths that have struck. He traces these losses to what's happening in the communion celebration. I would guarantee that they had made this connection. And when he says to them, they're going, holy smokes. Now, there's things that happen at this juncture in salvation history that is not to be repeated. This is the beginning of the church, and there are dynamics here that we don't experience to the same degree. Miracles were rife everywhere. There's perhaps some miracles, but they were everywhere. As C.S. Lewis said, they weren't just miracles, there was martyrdom. And what C.S. Lewis writes, miracles and martyrdom tend to congregate at the same places in salvation history. So there were evidences of divine power and judgment that were very obvious because it was the beginning of the church, I'm not sure that these, in fact, I know here, these kind of things don't exist. If they, Might they exist in third world countries or countries where the gospel has never penetrated? Perhaps. When I was in China and heard stories about things that happened as the church became established there, there were all kinds of things that occurred. So that might be so, but in a country like ours, I don't believe that we're going to see these kind of dynamics. People get ill, some die. It's We're just not in that kind of juncture. Does that make sense? We're not in that kind of place historically, but these people were. And um, Paul goes on, he says, when we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What he is telling them? That these things that are occurring are wake-up calls. And he he's being very direct here. And what he's saying to them, to these Corinthians, fix these celebrations. Fix them. This is not just a little issue. See, they had a tendency to see food sacrificed to idols. That Oh, that's really what we need to look at. And what Paul said, that's an issue, but that's a spiritual misdemeanor. What's happening in communion is a spiritual felony. This is unconscionable. That's what Paul is trying to teach them. What are the major things and what are the minor things? What are the most important things? Sharing, love, well... The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through that's what counts. That's what counts. That's what matters. And that's why Paul puts the focus where he does. Um, he says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Um, Again, eating food offered to idols, that had come to be the major issue. Paul spends a lot of time, but he he kind of gives them some guidelines, but not with the same intensity. There is more intensity here than there is with anything he deals with. Um, the Lord's Supper, selfishness, is a major issue. You know what ends up happening a lot in churches and creating divisions? There are divisions And the body of Christ becomes fractured when we put major focus on minor issues and minor focus on major issues. When we major on the majors and minor on the minors, we have an ability, even when we think of different things, to be able to come together. But we in the church have a nasty habit of majoring on minors and minoring on majors. And what's happening here, Paul is teaching them about minor and major issues. Food sacrificed idols is an issue. It's not the major issue. What happens in the Lord's Supper, that's the major issue. The presence or absence of love, that's the major issue. Um says, then, my brothers, when you come together and eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. To eat the Lord's Supper worthily, one must recognize that all Christians, rich and poor, are joined together in Christ, share equally in his blessings, and should be treated worthily. Paul expects the Corinthians to receive one another. Really what it means, receive one another? When you come together, you share your food with each other. You don't start early and gobble it down so that the good stuff is left before the second-class citizens show up. And it's not just you might not, what he's telling them, do not. And again, how does it apply today? We live in a different time. Our communion celebrations are different. But we need to understand what he's telling them. Do not do that. And he's, he puts a real heavy focus on there. Um, only by sharing will they treat the embarrassment of the have-nots, capture the spirit of Jesus' sacrifice. If they come only to fill their belly, they're not there to proclaim the Lord's death. And, if, and what he tells them, if you're going to do that, just stay home. Stay home and eat. That's fine. Eating's not against the rules. But it's not the sole purpose, not real purpose of celebrating the Lord's Supper. If the church's gathering is to be meaningful, it has to be an expression of real fellowship, which includes sharing. Paul is intense and direct because, as we've looked at, love matters. Again, it says the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What we see here as well, though, is we think about love, and we're going to make two things about love, the difference between worldly love and godly love. Love matters. Well, let's be clear about love, and just we'll say two things about it. Um, With respect to the difference between worldly love and godly love, one is that from a biblical point of view, It seems like love is more verb than noun. Love is more verb. 
It's something you do, not something you feel. It's not something you fall into and out of, but it's a way you treat somebody else. That's what love means biblically. It's more action than emotion. It's about doing. Uh, there are some ways of living. There's the iron rule, the silver rule, and the golden rule. Iron rule, Julius Caesar. Veni vidi vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. The iron rule is if you can get it, get it. If you have the power to take it, take it. The world belongs to the strong. So get what you can. I've said this before. Get what you, this is another little saying. I don't know who to attribute this to, though. <laughs> get what you can. Can what you get. Sit on your can. Yeah, that's this one. I'm not sure who came up with that one. Um, Julius Caesar came up with that one. That was the, that's the iron rule. Uh, then there's the silver rule. This was um, Jews. Jews were the ones that talked about this one. Rabbi Hillel, what is hateful to yourself, do to no other. So if there's something that you don't want someone to do to, to you, don't do it to them. That's the silver rule. Jesus trumped both of these, and he tells us what love is like. This is what love is like. The golden rule, do to you others, do to others as you would have them do to you. Um, this sets the bar and knows what it says. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Love is active. And that's what the Bible seems to indicate. There's some verses that are talked about as being kind of puzzling, but they really aren't. With respect to love and love being doing, listen to this verse. James talks about this verse. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you to be warm and well-fed. But does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And what that makes sense, though, doesn't it? What he's talking about is the faith in Christ is faith in one who gave himself. And believing, again, this is a high bar, but if we are to call ourselves by his name, it behooves us to do what he did. Again, we're not going to do it perfectly, uh, not even kind of perfectly, but there is that standard. That makes sense, doesn't it? Makes sense. A faith that just is nice and says nice things but doesn't do things, that's that's not that. Um, another, it says in 1 John 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. I think we understand this. We know that this is true. And yet when we consider what's the litmus test of Christianity, the litmus test of Christianity, you know what we tend to go to again? Listen to me carefully. We tend to go to morality. That's the litmus test of Christianity. Are you being moral? And is that a factor? Mm -hmm. Is it the factor? I don't think so. It's possible to manage morality and to be extremely self-centered. Is that possible? Possible? Somebody who manages morality but does so within the context of being very self-absorbed, very self-focused, is that the golden rule? Again, I'm not saying, you know, don't, I'm not saying don't care about that, care about that, but understand at the end of the day, what God is going to determine is, I was hungry and did you feed me? I was without clothes, and did you put clothes on me? When, when do we do this? We didn't see you. To the degree you did it to the least of my brothers, you do it to me. Ooh. So the, um, that's, that's where he sets the bar. Interestingly, uh, we tend to make morality, again, the litmus test of spirituality. And listen to this. This is an interesting verse. It talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what their sin was, and they are guilty of the thing we all know that they were guilty of. But listen to what it says. In Ezekiel, it talks about their sin. Here's what it says. Ezekiel 16:49. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. We all know what that is. The sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, they did not help the poor and needy. That was the sin of Sodom. In fact, I wonder to what degree that sin led to the other sins. If we do what it is we are to do, finding places to give, maybe we don't have as much time to do the other things that we get tempted to do. What's the root problem and what's the fruit problem? Um, so, one distinction between godly love and worldly love is that love is a verb, not just a noun. The second distinction is even more challenging, I think. Love is for them, not just for us. Love is for them not just for us. This is what distinguishes godly and worldly love. It is deep and wide rather than narrow and shallow. It's a little bit easier to love us narrow in a shallow way. It's very challenging to love them in a biblical way. It's, um, here's what it says. It says in Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. There's a standard here, and God sets the standard of what how love acts, what love is like it acts. Not only 
what it does. But the challenging thing, I think, is who the target is. It's not just us. It's them. Who is your them? We all have thems. People that are outside of us. And the biblical mandate is biblically. What love means, it is deep. It does. And it's wide. It includes them. Um, there are really good things that happens in, happen in church. There are small groups that are very effective. And people gather together and they, and again, there's nothing, I'm not, I'm not throwing a rock at this at all. It's very important. It, it happens all the time. But it's not a basis of boasting, is it? Because oftentimes in a small group, it's us. And that's appropriate. It's necessary. But the love that it's talking about here is not love for us. It's love for them. It's much more difficult. It's what it says. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. That's them. That's why love can't be emotion. I don't think it's possible to like your enemies. I think it's emotionally it's not possible to like an enemy. It's possible to love an enemy because love biblically is not an emotion. It's an action. You can act in the best interest of someone not because you feel like it, but because love is a verb and love is for them. And that's what this table reflects. Jesus coming, not just to say nice things, but to give of himself, not just for those who loved him, but giving himself for those who don't, for those who ignored and disrespected him. He gave himself for them, for them, for them. Love is a verb, and love is for them. But the challenges do us do to others, and the others are them as well, as you would have them do to you. Um, it's not enough to love us. We are to love them. Again, you can't like an enemy, I really don't think you can, and be healthy mentally. Really, really. If you, if there's somebody that mistreats you, and you say, please give me another. There's something wrong there. It's not talking about sadism. But it's possible if an enemy is in a place where they are needy and desperate for you to do something for them. And I think that's what the Bible is talking about when it says love your enemies. Um, the cross certainly is, well, is the cross about sin management at its deepest core? Is it about sin management? Or is it about love management? I think it's the latter. And again, do both. But love is the litmus test.
Christ is about love management. We are to remember Christ's death because love begets love. The height at which God sets the bar of love is high. None of us can walk out of here and feel like, well, we have the, we have this kind of covered. And we can look down at others who don't have it covered as much as we. This is a very challenging standard. And that's why we come back to the table and back to the table and back to the table. We do it on a monthly basis. Why? Because when you take the bread and, and the cup, here's what we think of. The one we honor. He tells us that love is a verb and love is for them. And what we do is we are thankful that you served us. You gave your life for us, all of us. I don't care what you've done. Jesus gives his body equally, and he really did. No joke. You hear this all the time. He really did come to die for us, all of us what love does when it's pure. Again, we're not Jesus. Love is for, well, it's for us, but for them, those of us who consider ourselves to be outside of the scope of his love. You might think of yourself that he loves people who are nice. He loves people who are respectful and who have the right attitudes towards him, but for him, love is is a verb and love is for them. And that's, that's why we come to the table. Love begets love. Drink this in. When you eat the bread and drink the cup, think about love. And think about how for Jesus love was a verb. Promoted action. And love was for them. Equally, um, grab the bread and the juice. It's either here or in the back. I won't tell you when to take it, but when you eat and drink, think about Jesus and what his death and what love means. And dear Father, we just want to say thank you this morning for your last supper. Help us to remember deep and wide. Help us to understand that this is for us, but also for them. And help us to understand it's about getting full in love and serving it to others. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.